You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I have indeed been here on a number of occasions. I feel as if we're growing old together. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back, though. Um, I'm aware, as I stand up to speak this morning, that some of you attended our conference yesterday and that you're probably looking for a sermon that continues the themes of the conference and brings everything to an excellent conclusion, and that some of you were not at the conference and you may not have much idea of what went on, and I have the challenge of preaching a sermon that makes sense to everybody. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to very, very briefly explain just the leading metaphor of yesterday's conference, just so we understand our starting point. Uh, the big idea is this, that as Christians, we are encouraged by Scripture to regard ourselves as living in exile, as exiles in the world in our present time and place. So think in particular about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, uh, dear friends, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Uh, we always live in exile as Christ followers, looking forward to our new home, right? We're not, this is not, we are somewhat at home here. It's not that we're in the wrong place, as it were. God has placed us here. But we are not yet fully at home in what Peter describes in another letter as God's new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. That's where we're heading. But we're not at home yet. As we seek to follow Christ then, it's very important that we try to understand the landscape of our exile. What is the world like in which we currently live, and why is it like that? And that is really, uh, in large measure, what some of us were thinking about yesterday. But then, having understood the nature of the landscape, we also need to develop disciplines of exile that will enable us not just to survive, but also to flourish as Christ's disciples living in exile. And it's about the disciplines of exile that I want to speak this morning. Now, Psalm 137 is a particularly helpful Scripture on this topic because it looks back explicitly on a period of exile historically for the people of God, a particular exile. This is the exile of the people of Judah to Babylon in the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire in 587 B.C. You can read about this in 2 Kings uh, 24 and 25. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, verse 1. These rivers or waters included big rivers like the Tigris and the Euphrates, but also a vast irrigation system distributed right across the, the territory of Babylon, which made this region in ancient times wonderfully and remarkably fertile. 
this was a good place to live from the point of view of material well-being. Babylon registered highly on the quality of life scale in the ancient Near East. This is exactly why when the Judean exiles had the chance later to return to their homeland, relatively few chose to do so. It was a good place to live. And so their choice was, we'll stay, and we shall assimilate into the larger culture. And from the Babylonian point of view, that was the natural good and right thing to do, of course, uh, because they evidently regarded their own culture as wonderful, and they considered exile to be a privilege as much as a punishment. Uh, a previous people group, the Assyrians, thought exactly the same. From, they were also from this region further north. Uh, at the gates of Jerusalem in 701 BC, the king's delegate has this to say to the inhabitants, make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. <coughs> I may have a large army beside your city gate, and it may look like a siege, but trust me, it's all in your own best interest. All right, I'm going to take you off to this wonderful land, and of course, he describes it in terms of the promised land. This is the language of Deuteronomy, and it has always been this way with power, with imperial state power, all the way through the ages. Oppression dressed up as liberation by leaders who present themselves as the fathers of their people, the true guarantors of their ultimate good, the ones who keep us all safe. So it is in Psalm 137. Sing us songs of joy, the Babylonian captors demand of their prisoners. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You're on the way to the promised land. You're on the way to utopia. You should be happy. It's a very seductive invitation, and the people of God have often encountered this invitation all the way through the ages. The early church encountered this invitation in the Roman Empire, which the New Testament portrays as the contemporary Babylon. Right? If you look at the book of Revelation, Rome is Babylon. Babylon is Rome. And these first Christians were told, yeah, we don't mind if you hang out with this guy Jesus. We don't even mind if you pray to this guy Jesus, but just make sure you conform to all of our Roman norms. And if you do, it'll all be fine. And we still hear this invitation now in our own Babylon. <coughs> Hi, on the quality of life index, I understand, uh, globally. We still hear that invitation now. Forget that you're in exile here. Be fully at home. Don't think about it too much. Just be happy. Well, Psalm 137 describes three disciplines of exile that will help us 
to deal well with this invitation. I'm going to summarize them in this talk in the following way, the discipline of remembering, the discipline of resistance, and the discipline of trust. What was it that led the psalmist and his neighbors in Psalm 137 to keep clearly in mind that Babylon was not their home? Why is it that when so many were ultimately bedazzled and bewitched by the, the glories of this destination, how did these particular people retain their understanding of life as a journey? The most fundamental answer to this question is they remembered. And that's where I want to put my main emphasis this morning, actually. Memory, rather than sight or touch or feelings, memory shaped their thinking. They remembered who they were, they remembered where they had come from and where they were heading, and they remembered what Babylon and her allies truly stood for beneath the veneer of sophistication and civilization that were presented to their senses. They remembered, to put it in uh, shorter form, they remembered Jerusalem, what it stood for, what had been done there. And they committed themselves never to forget, in verses 5 and 6, never to forget their highest joy never to forget that their highest joy would not be found living in Babylon. Now, this is only part of a, a much larger biblical theme. Remembering is a huge foundational part of biblical spirituality, and much of the ancient Israelite religious system was set up to help people remember. The very fact that the Levites, for example, were not given any territory in Israel had to do with this. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, that's why they're not given land. And this was a constant reminder of the central biblical truth that we're now considering. This is not our home. We're still on our journey. These people haven't been able to settle. They're almost a, they're a constant symbolic reminder of this truth. Uh, the New Testament picks up this theme, and Jesus teaches us the importance of remembering where our treasure is. Do you remember? <laughs> remember that? Matthew 6, because He says, where your treasure lies, there will your heart be also. The Sabbath, a weekly reminder in ancient Israel that God is our Creator and that work is not life and life is not work a reminder, and I'm quoting here from Exodus, that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Every week you remember that. And this kind of remembering of the past is the basis for a lot of the ethical instruction in Scripture. Remember who you really are and act accordingly and induct your children into these memories so that they know who they really are. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is big on this. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols in your hands, bind them on your foreheads, teach them to your children, 
talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Notice the all-encompassing nature of this task. Hearts, minds, hands, foreheads recruited to the task, our whole being recruited to our task, and we are to remember and to encourage remembrance throughout the entire day. Our physical environment, says Deuteronomy, is to be constructed in order to help us. In the case of those people, the door frames of their homes and the gates of their towns representing in the entire space in which they live. This is a big deal, all-encompassing, all-absorbing. This task of remembering, you see, requires fierce commitment. It won't happen naturally. The task of remembering requires fierce commitment because biblical faith teaches us, and we know this, that the danger of forgetting is very, very real, constantly with us. And so, we notice that the psalmist in this psalm pronounces curses on his own hand and tongue if he should forget. It's very violent language. He invites inability of action and speech if his own action and speech are not consistent with his faith and do not reflect where his treasure lies and where his joy ultimately is. But we remember Jesus' own fierce words about what it takes to be a disciple, don't we? That we must be ready likewise to sacrifice eye, foot, and hand, whatever is important to us, if by keeping such things we are led into sin. Discipleship is a serious business, and remembering is fundamental to discipleship, but it does not come easily to us. We need to be intentional about it. And we realize from all of this that to survive and to flourish in exile requires more than simply reading our Bibles well. Of course, we do need to read our Bibles well, we do have to dive into our Scriptures and constantly search them and, and live our lives in accordance with them. But nonetheless, the remembering must still be done. Uh, we find ourselves as Christians presently involved in a kind of a war. We always have been involved in a kind of a war. And we're reminded, are we not, put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes, Ephesians chapter 6. But the point that we sometimes forget is that the first battle that needs to be won is the battle for our own hearts and minds. And this is as crucial to our victory in our war as it ever is to victory in any war. This is why people run hearts and minds campaigns, right? It's appropriate perhaps to remember here that in Greek mythology, there's a river that runs through Hades that causes all who drink from it to lose all memory of their past existence, the waters of Lethe. It's a good question to ask, what are our contemporary waters of Lethe? What are the, the streams that run through our lives which interfere with our remembrance of Zion? 
What are the rivers that we drink from that cause forgetfulness in exile? And here I want to briefly contrast the picture of daily life in Deuteronomy 11 with another very different picture comprising various elements in our world. Most of us spend much of each day or at work or in educational environments uh, shaped by a, a zeitgeist, a defining spirit, the mood of a time, a zeitgeist that already offers us zero support for our Christian journey. The way of the modern world, as a colleague of mine has written, makes it easy to live as if God did not exist. The very environment in which we live makes it easy to live as if God does not exist. And after work and after school, of course, we go home. In Canada, over 93% of adults are currently joined in their homes by a TV, primarily through digital cable. They watch, on average, just over 25 hours per week, just under four hours per day of TV. Uh, 75% of Canadians also admit to logging onto the internet while watching television. You don't have to tell me if that's you this morning. You know who you are. 73% of uh, Canadians spend at least three to four hours each day online, no doubt both at work and at home. 66% spend at least one hour each day online watching TV or movies, and the leading online content provider, go figure, by some distance is Netflix, 58% of the total market. My point is the shaping power of the TV and internet as their content and ethos is so widely disseminated, the shaping power of all of that is enormous. It's a primary way in which the general cultural environment of Babylon seeps into our lives in what we sometimes laughingly refer to as our private spaces, as if. Shaping our understanding of reality, our imaginations, our desires, leading us to particular viewpoints concerning what is normal. And this shaping does not need to be a matter of conscious intention in order to be significant, although a lot of it is intentional, because there are some very well-thought-out agendas at play in all of this. Politicians want us to see the world in the way that suits them. Businesses are quite intent on creating in us a desire to buy their products, and social activists of all kinds are very determined to transform our hearts and minds in their direction. They don't need to knock on our doors any longer and spend hours arguing with us. They don't need us to go out to mass meetings any longer. We are their captive audiences in our own homes, happily absorbing from their rhetoric ideas that range from the true and the good through to the false and the wicked by way of the wrong and the stupid. It is the very intent of companies like Facebook, and it was from the beginning, to make us captive in this way. And I'm, I don't have to, to go do much research on this because Facebook's founding president, 
Sean Parker said this in 2017. The question that Facebook's founders asked was, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? It's a social validation feedback loop, he said, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. It's disarmingly frank. <laughs> if you've never seen the 2020 documentary, The Social Dilemma, I entirely recommend it if you just want to get in touch with reality on this point. So, the question is not, you see, whether we are reading our Bibles well from time to time, like once a day, maybe in church or whatever. The question really is, how much time are we spending in the biblical story each day, allowing it to shape our thinking, our imagination, and our desires? How much in the biblical story, how much time there relative to the time we spend in this other world I'm talking about? this pervasive other world presented to us every minute of every day at work, in school, and then reinforced at home by TV, internet, and social media? How much time are our children spending under the instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how much under the tutelage of Dr. Cable, Professor Netflix, and Pastor Twitter? <laughs> if any one of us is spending, say, eight hours a day either online or watching TV, and let's say 30 minutes a day individually in worship, prayer, and Bible study, and four hours a week maybe gathering with other Christians to do the same, what do you think is likely to be the outcome of all of that? Who is likely to have effective control over your imaginations, your desires, and whose view of the world is likely to occur to you instinctually as the more plausible view of the world. Adult Christians in post-Christian countries sometimes express surprise at the rapidity of our culture's turn away from Christian faith and the diminishing numbers of young people in our churches. But is it really that surprising if after 18 years of life in which the internet has been the real catechizer of our young, if at age 19 they no longer find the Christian way of looking at the world plausible? Is it really so surprising? In this tale of two cities in which we are embroiled, Jerusalem and Zion, uh, Jerusalem and Babylon, we first need to remember, by every means possible, that Zion is Zion and Babylon is Babylon. And this will enable us, in the second discipline, to embrace the second discipline, which is the courage to resist. The captors in Psalm 137 wanted the exiles to forget who they were, to leave behind their pain. They wanted them to entertain them, if you can believe it, with songs of joy. Well, remembering reality in the midst of many tears, the exiles found the nearest trees and suspended from these trees their musical instruments. They retired them for the foreseeable future, a gesture of defiance, a gesture of disobedience, because they realized that weeping 
was a more appropriate response to their situation than partying was. They remembered, well, they didn't remember, but this, this applies. Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn. There is not a beatitude, I think, that says blessed are those who party, although parting is not a bad thing to do in context. They realized the importance, perhaps, even for their captors, of their refusal to capitulate to this false Babylonian worldview. They wanted to tell truth to the culture as much as anything else, so that maybe even their captors would come to realize one day that they stood for truth and reality. This is what happens in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar realizes for the first time in his life who he really is in relation to the living God. And so the exiles hung their harps in the trees, and they refused to play along. They resisted just like Daniel and his friends in this same exile. Daniel and his friends suffered for their resistance, but their suffering changed empire. The early Christians suffered in the Roman Empire, but their suffering changed empire. And we who live in exile must resist as well. We won't resist if we don't remember. But if we do remember, we should go on to resist. We must resist false ideas. We must resist false moralities. We must refuse to participate in our culture's attempts to normalize these things. We must proclaim truth. We must live holy lives, even if it brings suffering, which it undoubtedly eventually will one way or another. The particular forms of that resistance will depend very much on when and where we live and, and in which situations we, we find ourselves. Uh, for some people, this is going to involve resistance even in our churches, I'm afraid. I'm sure that's not true in this church. But the fact of the matter is the church has always found itself already compromised when we talk about these issues, right? Already divided, already acculturated partly, and so on. And it takes effort. It takes a, a lot of effort sometimes to, to dig ourselves out of the holes that we dig by already having compromise in our thinking and our living. You remember the Apostle Paul addresses this specifically in the case of the Roman Christians, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way, contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, their own desires. Well, that, that is a reality, and we'd be naive and romantic not to recognize this as a reality in many of our churches. For many of us, our Christian calling will involve resistance in our workplace. This is the primary location each day that many of us engage with Babylon. It will always involve the unspoken resistance of heart and mind, even as we respectfully try to negotiate a pathway through all of that in a Daniel 1 kind of a way. Uh, there are going to be Daniel 3 moments. But it's interesting and significant that Daniel does not go looking for trouble, if I can put it that way, right? So we don't look for it. It will come eventually, probably, anyway, in some form or another. 
For some of us, the main site of our resistance will be in our schools, another primary location in which exiles engage with Babylon, younger exiles mainly, although some of you are school teachers, I'm sure. Parents need to be as sure as they can be that their children are safe at school, including morally safe at school. In British Columbia at the present time, it is not necessarily the case that our children are morally safe at school. We need to be on top of our children's education in exile, taking full responsibility for it, not simply delegating it away to other people, particularly other people who may well not share our beliefs and our values and may well actively want to shape our children in ways contrary to Christian faith. We need to resist. Maybe in this area, we first of all have to wake up and smell the coffee, if I can use a different metaphor. And the final discipline of exile I want to mention is the discipline of trust. So, remembering, resisting, trusting. The final verses of Psalm 137 uh, have sometimes uh, been, been found to be very disturbing to readers, and you may have had that slightly visceral feeling as David was reading. And it's because of this metaphor, as I think it is, of the children of daughter of Babylon. And people are thinking, oh, kids, you know, no, that's not right. The children of the daughter of Babylon are simply the inhabitants of Babylon in the same way the children of the daughter of Jerusalem are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the point is, the Babylonian people, the children in question, have utterly weighed laced to Jerusalem and to the whole surrounding region. They have massacred people of all ages. The exiles have not only left a land behind them, they have left their dead behind them. And the psalmist expresses the hope that these horrendous crimes will not be forgotten. He trusts that this is so. In the same way that faithful worshipers of God strive always to remember Zion, so the psalmist prays that God will remember some stuff. God will remember Edom's treachery. God will remember Babylon's victims. And God will bring justice. And he trusts that God will ensure this appropriate, fitting, poetic justice will fall on these people who have committed these dreadful, terrible deeds. Biblical faith, of course, forbids us from taking personal vengeance on Babylonians. That's obvious. Even if they treat us brutally, we are to love our oppressors somehow, even though we cannot allow their crimes to go unnoticed, and even though we should not allow the voices of their, of their victims to go unheard. We ourselves are not tasked with actually responding to that violence. So, where does justice come from? Justice must come from God. It will come from God. God will not forget the true character of Babylon, even if her children make every effort to spin it in a million different ways. Babylon, we are told in Scripture, will certainly fall because God is sovereign over all kingdoms and gives them to anyone He wishes. That's from the book of Daniel. So, three disciplines. In the meantime, 
we remember, we resist, we trust. Perhaps such faithful lives will change the landscape of exile itself. Perhaps Daniel and his friends will be like them. We shall become the means by which the empire changes. If not, perhaps we shall be able to persuade the empire at least to leave us alone in peace and quiet to get on with our lives. We should certainly pray for these outcomes and work for these outcomes, the Daniel 1 approach, along with other brave souls who are standing up for what is true and good in their own way, according to their own lights. Our love for our enemies, quite apart from anything else, requires that we keep on working in this way. And perhaps it will make a difference. Perhaps it will make no difference. It's entirely possible that our post-Christian Western cultures will only ever become more post-Christian in the upcoming decades. It's entirely possible that the avowedly tolerant but actually totalitarian elites who now hold political and legal power in this postmodern world will end up offering no space in which the true church can safely exist. It's a possibility that we shall soon find ourselves wholly back in the Roman Empire, as it were, requesting tolerance and failing to get it. It's possible, entirely possible, that it will soon no longer be acceptable or even legal to hold to traditionally Christian views on a whole range of matters, including views about gender and sexuality, and be able to live our own lives in accordance with that much quite apart from anything else. All of that is possible. Perhaps we shall change empires. Perhaps we shall not. We do not know what will happen, and in a very fundamental way, it does not matter what happens, because we must in any case continue in our pursuit of God. Living in Babylon, the city of our present exile, we must remain devoted to Jerusalem the city prepared for us in the future. And our goal individually and together is to get there with our hearts and our minds and our bodies intact. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.